0: And welcome to Inglorious Trexperts Live! Yeah. And the
1: crowd goes wild.
0: I'm, uh, I'm Mark Altman, and uh, I'm here with my regular co host, and
1: I'm Darren Docterman, and we are the Inglorious
0: Trexperts.
2: Voice of God, one voice,
3: many faces.
2: Does this better suit your expectations?
3: Well
2: said. It is I. what took
3: to reach me could not have been an easy one. It was not! The barrier stood between us, but we breached it. Magnificent. You are the first to find me. We sought only your infinite wisdom. And how did you breach the barrier? With a starship. This
2: starship? Could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier?
3: It could, yes.
2: Then I shall make use of this starship.
3: It will be your chariot. Excuse me.
1: It will carry my power to every corner of creation.
3: Excuse me, I'd
1: just like to ask a question. What does God need with a starship?
3: Bring the ship closer.
4: I said...
1: What does God need with a starship, Jim? What are
3: you doing? I'm asking you a question. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID.
1: Then here is the proof you see.
0: And today we have a very special episode for those of you who braved the Comic-Con crowds and Anaheim Parking to come to this 30th anniversary tribute to Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. We need our pain. And um, (laughs) uh, we're thrilled to have with us uh, some special guests. Uh, Before I I introduce our very special guest, I want to uh, mention some of our not not a special guest. No, they're, they're quite pretty, so special. I are, they're special to me. Okay, <laughs> so uh, first on the far left, we have a returning champion, the director of Free Enterprise, producer of Agent Cody Banks, and he recently launched the Burnett work on YouTube. Mr. Robert Meyer Burnett. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. It's, it's, it's great that you're here, so thank you. And uh, next to him is the uh, screenwriter of such movies as Thor, X-Men First Class. He was a writer-producer on Black Sails, Fringe, and uh, some other really cool stuff, like The Terminator, Saracana Chronicles, and some other things we can't talk again? about. I did. I worked on it hours before the panel. <laughs> um, and that is Ashley Edward Miller. Ashley, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I have to say why this panel is special and why you're all very lucky. This is going to be the highlight of your convention, I'm telling you right now. Um, And for those of you listening at home, this is going to be the highlight of your weekend. Because we have with us um, one of the the most interesting and accomplished people to work on a Star Trek movie, short of Robert Wise. No offense to David. Um, This next panelist, or or our guest, uh, he did back in 80s. His first film was Dreamscape, which we all love, for Joseph Rubin. Not to be confused with Interspace, it's Dreamscape, it was great. Shout Factory just put out a new special edition of it that's terrific, you should check it out if you haven't seen it. Um, he also worked on The Stepfather, which was a staple of my high school viewing uh, with uh, Joseph Rubin uh, directed it also. Terry O'Quinn was brilliant in it. I could go on and do a whole pen on this, but that's not why you're here. Um, he did Three Musketeers, he always bet on Black, was Passenger 57, Wesley Snipes, Money Train, of More recently, films like *Obsessed* and uh, *Lakeview Terrace*, and he has *The Intruder* coming out next year from Sony, right? Coming out in May. Coming out in May. I'm sorry, coming out in May. They get about five weeks. So, for the 30th anniversary of *Star Trek V*, you need to go celebrate by going to see *The Intruder* and seeing, you know, and, and celebrating after, David
2: after you've seen uh, *Endgame* a couple of times. It comes. Out, <laughs> it comes out the couple. next couple. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so. Without any further ado, the screenwriter of Star Trek V and also the unproduced Academy years, which is great, and you should all check it out, Mr. David Lowry. So David, we're we're really happy to have you. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we have a lot of questions for you. I want to start, I mean, I sort of refer to Star Trek V as uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, because there's so many great things in it, and you know, then you have the brand fair and effects, which would probably fall under the ugly of it all. But um, it is a, a movie that is more like any of the Star Trek TV shows than any Star Trek movie. Starts with a teaser, has a, a great teaser, um, and... Um,
2: and the same budget, I think.
0: Is a- <laughs> the same budget. <laughs> Uh, The character relationships have never been better between the Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Triptych. There's so much to talk about. So I think probably the best place to start is sort of David, you know, they had just finished this trilogy of films, an unintentional trilogy, two, three, and four. And now there was a decision to do a standalone film. Uh, Basically, Leonard had directed two films, and it was Shatner's turn at bat. Casey came to bat. And uh, if you could tell us sort of how you got involved with the film, the sort of genesis and your introduction to the universe. (laughs) It's topic forbidden. Um, I
2: had uh, had sold a spec script to Paramount called Flashback, and it was made about a year after Star Trek V had Dennis Quaid and, uh, uh, sorry, um, what's his name? Flashback. Dennis Hopper. Sorry. right? Pardon me. I'm already going up. Dennis Hopper and Kiefer Sutherland, but was made after Star Trek V. And I'd sold the script to uh, Paramount. And one day, one of the executives there asked me if I had any interest in Star Trek V. They were they were looking for a writer. And I said, sure, I was a fan. So they put me together with uh, Harv Bennett, and then later with Bill. And I guess they Uh, read the script that I had sold to Paramount Flashback and thought maybe I'd be a good candidate. So we started meeting and uh, just really talking. Bill, as you know, had already written a story, and that was going to be Star Trek V no matter what. So I kind of came into it knowing that I was going to be trying to develop and tailor Bill's story and, and meet his expectations.
0: Now, Flashback was like the original Austin Powers in a sense, wasn't it? I mean, in that uh, it, it deals with a character from the 60s who now finds himself in contemporary times.
2: Yeah, and uh, I, I don't know what it was that they saw in that that made them think that I could write uh, Star Trek. They both said that they had also screened Dreamscape, and neither was impressed. <laughs> so, uh, so I guess it was really based on that script and then just the chemistry that happened when we, when we got together. Well, the, yeah. whole,
1: the whole idea of a Star Trek film art our- characters from the 60s in contemporary times, so that's probably why.
2: Yeah, what
0: a ringing endorsement. Well, we didn't really like your movie, but we're thinking of hiring you. (laughs) Uh, Now, Han Shatner had a a short-lived dalliance with Eric Von Lustenbach. How, How do you pronounce his name? Loose Potter. Loose Potter. I'm, I'm terrible with the pronunciation. Jessica um, Maker. Um, but uh, yeah. So so and, and that didn't really work out. They paid him a ton of money, from what I understand.
2: I, you know what? I don't know. My my version of that is that I, I think Bill started kind of going rogue very early. Right. You know, he just made the assumption that he was directing the next one without really you know having these meetings and consultations with the with the studio or with Harv. And I guess, I think kind of on his own, he had sought out Eric von Lucebatter, Um and I don't know to what degree they developed anything. Um, but Bill ended up writing, I guess, maybe like a seven or eight page kind of outline, right. which was called um, Act of Love. I, I think also they probably went to Nick Meyer at some point, and I think he wasn't available, so... I was the. That's what
0: you say when you think there's no way in hell you want to work on a project. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not available, but come back to me next time. And I have a feeling that was maybe what Nick was thinking when they approached him. Well,
2: he was busy at that time. I mean, he was a very big director too, and you know there was also uh, this question as to whether Leonard was even going to be available for the for the movie.
0: Because he was, after Star Trek Four was a very much in-demand director. He'd done Three Men and a Baby, which was huge, and uh, was doing a bunch of films. He had to deal with Touchstone. He did Good Mother, which was not as successful. So he was on a run of, of successful movies, and the question was, would he play Spock again? Was yeah. that something you guys talked about internally? We,
2: we did. Um, it, there was a time when it looked like he wasn't going to be available. And so I think we spent a couple hours sort of, could we replace Leonard? Could you cast somebody else in this part? Could anybody else play it? And what I remember are some of the names we came up with were um, James Coburn, uh, oh God, I Martin, Landau, mm-hmm.
1: Martin Landau,
2: which wasn't the worst idea, you know, because he and Leonard they kind of played the same character on Mission Impossible, and he had they had some of the same qualities, but it was never really a serious discussion. So, unfortunately, Leonard became available right. so it all worked out.
0: It's so interesting because Martin Landau had been one of the original choices for Spock back oh, is that in right? the 60s. Right. Mm-hmm. So. And again after they were thinking of replacing Nimoy.
2: Oh really? The season, yeah.
1: There was talk about you know what options do we have and, and Nimoy's or uh, 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 his name popped up again.
0: And I think he was playing Spock in Space 1999 too uh, Was a character <laughs> devoid of emotion <laughs> more or less. Um, so, <laughs> That, that's really interesting. So you said when Shatner approached you, he had a very strong idea of what he wanted it to be. Now, this was to find to actually find God. Uh, yeah, think.
2: it was. Um, and I think the reaction that we all had to it was, you know, this is, this is interesting. You know, this is, this is ambitious. Um, but I know Harv was reluctant because he thought that it was a little bit of a kind of a shaggy dog story, meaning, like, what are you really going to find when you get there, and will it be satisfying, or will it just make the audience shrug and 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 forget it. So our challenge was really to try to find something else inside that story that we could sort of energize and and um, and, and, and that turned out to be the characters, the the Spock and McCoy and, and Kirk, focusing more on them and a little bit less on the mission, because it you know, Star Trek V is kind of a I want to say it's kind of a reactive story. Kirk and the crew, they're reacting to this other character who's really generating the plot. And sometimes you wonder, well, would it have been a better story if Kirk had suddenly been possessed to go find this planet or Spock or or one of the the other characters? Um, Because there was sort of a sense that they were just sort of being dragged along on this. And I think that's a, that was always a valid criticism. And one of the reasons for making the Cybok character Spock's brother was to try to kind of bring that a little tighter and closer into a personal uh, uh, drama. Uh, but there were certainly challenges in, in kind of meeting Bill's, Bill's vision. So I've got a question for you.
4: Um, you said your initial reaction to the document, to the, uh, to the concept was, well, this is interesting. Now, in my experience, when somebody shows me a document uh, and I say, well, this is interesting, my subtext is generally, are you out of your goddamn
2: mind? <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think there was part of that you know, involved in this, but at the time that I entered into it, I don't think, you know, it was still, everything was still kind of in flux. And I think there was always gonna be a possibility that maybe we'd go in some other direction or somebody would come up with some other kind of idea. Um, I, had, I had ideas for what I thought Star Trek V could be, um, but it became clear pretty early on that Bill was going to have his vision. Mm-hmm.
0: You know we're not going to let you get past uh, you know, this question without uh, giving us a sense of what some of those ideas may have been that you had that you wanted to bring to the table for Star Trek V.
2: Well, you know what I wanted to do? Um, I wanted to do the searchers mm-hmm. in space. That's great. And, I always believed that during that sort of Ponfar ceremony that uh, Spock had with, uh, uh, what's her name? Oh, with Savik? Savik. That That there was a child from that union. And my idea was that some sort of pharaoh-like ruler, alien, whatever, is kidnapping children around the galaxy for some kind of biblical reason, steals Spock's child, whom. Spock was not present for the birth, and Spock decides he's going to find his son. Of course, Kirk, who's lost a son, joins him, his friend, and it really becomes kind of the two of them uh, in this kind of uh, epic journey through space with the Enterprise probably showing up at the end like. The cavalry to to save the day if
0: only jeffrey hunter could have been in that have been in the searchers and in. Right. i have to say i've always i've always you know thought if i could go back in time what would be the one thing i could do i would want to go kill hitler right but no i think i want to go and let david make that movie instead because <laughs> i'm really i would love to see the star trek version of the searchers yeah. it, you know d kelly used to pitch after star trek six he had an idea he always wanted to do um, Star Trek Seven is the professionals, and the professionals was also a western, um, which is a great western. It's not as good as the Searchers, but it was a great idea for a Star Trek movie, where basically Kirk has to put together this team of people to go and uh, go on this mission. and They find out that the mission is a sort of a false flag kind of thing, and it was like it was like wow, maybe Dee should have been more involved creatively with the series. Um, you know what's
2: interesting about that also is that at the time we were getting into this, there. There were questions about D and D's health at, at that time, and so, very kind of in very mercenary fashion, my idea was that you would begin that movie with a with a birth on on Vulcan and a death on Earth, which would have been McCoy, um, and that would have been sort of the the, the the beginning of that of that story. I I, I never. Was allowed to pitch this. I may have mentioned it to Harve at some point, but it wasn't something that I ever brought up to Bill. But of
1: course, it had already been established on Next Generation that Dr. McCoy lived into the next generation time.
2: Is that right? I wasn't yeah. watching Next Generation.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh,
3: David, uh, yeah, I'm curious. The, the, I recently read the Act of Love story. It's a pretty serious and thoughtful, and sort of, uh, I was surprised by it. By it. I yeah. thought it was actually pretty good. But it's not funny. No. And the, the tone of it is, it's, I wouldn't say it's somber, but it's definitely, there's sort of a mournful element to it in a way. Yeah. I mean, it was clearly Shatner dealing with getting older, and right. I don't know if it would have made the best movie, <laughs> you know, but it was, it's an interesting document to read in that it came from Shatner. Yeah. Were you? Was there any mandate because Star Trek Four was the funny one, that you had to deal with humorous elements and sort of make sure whatever it was you came up with
2: was lighthearted, mirthful, yeah. and funny? Yeah, that was an imperative. That was that was part of it, and that's what made it difficult. You know, to to right. to, to to take that kind of somber and serious uh, story and find elements and, 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 and ways to sort of inject humor. You know, the idea of the Enterprise and the crew going back to San Francisco in 1986, I mean, that's inherently comic. You know, the the premise is comic. Going to see God, yeah, there is a way to make that funny, but, you know, Bill's intention was to make a serious movie and Paramount's intention was, you know, Star Trek IV had been so popular, such a crossover, had found a mainstream, yeah, that's really what they wanted. So there was this kind of duality and this kind of schizophrenia in in trying to accomplish both, and I think that that was really a challenge, was really hard. But what if God is a whale? (laughs) This takes care
4: of a lot of things. Or at least he lives in an aquarium. Actually, (laughs) I wonder how much of that is um, going way, way back to the success of Star Trek IV, how much of that... Um, is responsible for what is even now um, a feeling at, at Paramount and the film division that Star Trek films work best when they in some way come back to Earth. I mean, I know for a fact that that's something that is
2: constantly yeah. on their mind. Well, you know, um, in the early days watching uh, The Next Generation, which I did watch, um, I remember once they discovered the, the holodeck, they wanted every episode you know that was a, such a fantastic you know concept because it allowed them to you know do all these other and I always thought that that was a similarity in a way to these kind of things about going back to earth on Star Trek where it was like it was almost like the mission was not quite as exciting as interacting you know in the present yeah,
0: because everything was set on the ship and then the hall deck, they could go on contemporary locations or whatever and really opened it up or Western Street or, or whatever.
2: Yeah, and you could do all kinds of different styles and you could do, you know, uh, private eyes and, and film noir and all kinds of different genres.
0: I mean, I think the challenge for you, it seems with Star Trek IV, with, you know, uh, that laid, you know, integrating the humor is there's some wonderful character humor. The, the, the stuff at the um, campsite in the Yosemite is all wonderful. Unfortunately, you know, with Bill, his tendency to go big, is that he's great when he's reined in, right. and he had no one to rein him in, and so you sort of have like that weird ADR, like when Spock grabs him and holds him from you know hitting the ground. It's like woo, and it's like somebody needs to be there to say, well, maybe that's not the best. Uh, you know, <laughs> reaction, and then he plays stuff a little big, and then you have the Scotty hitting the header beam, right. um, you know, and it's just like, because Shatner will always go for the joke. We know that now. We know that. You know. I mean, everyone who, who who's seen his career post, you know, the Star Trek films knows he loves, you know, to, to be funny and for a joke, and, right. you know, Star Trek is, why Star Trek works is it's operatic. It's larger than life, but it's also grounded in a reality, which makes us love it. Um, so. Once you guys had sort of hammered out this story, um, how, you know, how did it evolve over the course of sort of you went off and, and wrote it, and then you were getting notes, I imagine, from the studio and from Bill and from Harv? And...
2: Yeah, I think it was a longer process than, than most. There were a few bumps in the road and, and, and questions about the availability of Leonard and, and, and Dee. There was a writer's strike in there somewhere where I couldn't work. Um, and then the dates got pushed back a couple of times. Um, so yeah there was it was, it was a kind of a long process. but as I recall, once we started shooting it it was a locked script. It was a Harve Bennett production, and Harves scripts were generally locked you know before you went to shoot and i don 't even remember. Any, I, I was there for the scouts and location and shooting and so forth. They were very gracious and I re, to, really appreciate that. That Bill and Harb were very inclusive and brought me along to be part of it and be part of the meetings and and uh, collaborate. Um, but um, sorry, I went off there. Well,
0: sorry. I want to ask you about you know you mentioned Hart Bennett and we should really stop and. Talk about Harv. Harv passed away. Was it was, I guess, two years ago. Harv, you know, Harv had sort of become the great bird of the galaxy for the movie series. Um, but what's interesting is Harv not only is a producer, but fancied himself a writer, and you know, wrote Star Trek III, wrote part of Star Trek IV. How was that for you? Was there, uh, you know, in terms of, you weren't just dealing with the producer notes, but I'm sure at times he had his writer hat on and maybe wanted to get in. It was that
2: difficult at all? Uh, no, but I was going to say, have you ever had these, these encounters where you meet somebody, where you meet a writer and there's like a, you know, that they've written things, you know, you've read them or you've seen them, but Harv never seemed like a writer to me. You know, Harv was a producer. He was a, a very creative kind of guy, but I've always been surprised, you know, that that he actually wrote Star Trek Three, wrote part of Two, and 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 um, very collaborative. I he he kind of just let me go and do what I wanted to do. But the but I'll tell you the amazing thing about about Harve Bennett, um, and you don't see this anymore, is that whenever I would do a revision or a rewrite, um, Harve would incorporate it into the script he would go into his office, he would close the door, nobody could come in, and he would spend the next two hours or whatever it took reading that script again from the first page to the last page, just to see how those small changes impacted uh, the story. And I don't think anybody does that anymore because we just scroll on our, yeah, you know. But uh, so he was an amazing guy in that way and very thorough. I think he felt a little bit of resentment at that time um, because he had a deal at Paramount. He had an overall deal at Paramount, and they were supposed to be producing other Harv Bennett films other than the Star Trek series. And though they developed some, he never got that opportunity. I think each time they just wanted him to do the Star Trek again.
0: They would say whatever they needed to do. to get Yeah, it. and he it, wanted to direct too. That was his other, I guess. when that, thats an Academy Year story. We'll talk about that. But
2: yeah, I think I think Harv's um, um, desire to direct I think really came out of some frustration of of working with um, uh, Leonard and working with Bill over the years. That it was finally his turn to do something, and um, it never it never happened. But. Um, he was an incredible, incredible guy, and he was very. Uh, he became a friend and a and a mentor, and I miss him a lot. He he actually, I think, passed away. Was it one or two days before Leonard?
0: Yeah, passed yeah.
2: away too. Yeah, yeah, that's right.
0: Um, I want to ask you because. Um, Obviously, I think one of the reasons Star Trek Five gets I think the primary reason Star Trek Five gets a bum rap is because of the visual effects by Brand Farron, which are you know clearly not on par with what ILM did on the previous movies and what was in contemporary cinemas at the time uh, you know and, and, and there's a much longer conversation to be had about you know why Brand Farron got the effects and and um, I think uh, we, we discussed it a little bit. Kirk Thatcher talked about it on the podcast a right. little bit uh, about problems on Star Trek IV that led to them seeking out other visual effects vendors. And uh, the test for God, I understand, came back you know very strong, and they sort of made their decision to go with Farron. And that actually does look great, George Murdoch in the light at the end. Um, but can you talk about the constant budget travails? Because at the time, Star Trek V was the most expensive Star Trek movie yeah, it was, what, 45, which was a little more than Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, and, but yet, you, the constant need to rein it in because the above the line was so high on this movie.
2: Yeah, well, Bill had a huge appetite. And um, although during shooting, he, he claimed that all he did was eat one baked potato a day. That's how he kept his weight down. Um, it was a potato this big. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Um, EFp
2: yeah it was very it was very ambitious and of course um, you don't like to blame bad special effects for reasons why your movie isn't working, but if you really look at contemporary films and movies made today they're they're kind of all special effects and and very dependent on on their effects um, you know we had big concepts about what this god planet was going to look like about what happens there. Um, you know, we had this, these, these, these Rockman type creatures that were supposed to form out of the natural formations, and you know, later, in later years we, we, I think they came up with one Rockman, and it was a guy in a suit, and it was, it was very disappointing. And, uh, and then a few years later in uh, Galaxy Quest, we finally got the Rockman in that. It was just in the wrong, it was in the wrong movie. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there was constant disappointment in terms of what was what was possible, and if you look at some of those shots, where it it almost, to me, sometimes looks like they just sort of pasted a page of the, you know, a picture of the Enterprise over over a starfield. But um, you know, I was disappointed in that. Um, The other thing I was disappointed about was, you know, they hired Jerry Goldsmith to do to do the score. And I was like, wow, this is fantastic. Jerry Goldsmith, he's the greatest film composer in the world, I can't wait. And he reprised the theme from The Motion Picture, which the next generation had been playing at the top for like the last two years. And it was it's a great theme, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's wonderful, but it's like, if you get Jerry Goldsmith to you know compose the score for your movie, Give us something else other than just kind of like going back and you know reprising. Uh, so no, I, th-
1: I think that I think that he was sort of uh, marking his territory with that on that to reestablish himself in the movie realm again. Really? At, by, by taking that original theme and establishing it in this movie because the previous three movies didn't have that theme in it.
2: That's that's true, but I feel like it had been used up by the next generation for oh, a couple it, of years.
1: You know, because I, 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 I love that theme, and I love the score to five, um, and it's considered one of the best scores he ever did. And I don't think, I don't think, that, using the, I don't think that using the same theme was... T- to, me,
2: to me, it was kind of like, oh, I've got a scene in a drawer somewhere that I've already written that I can use See, for to this. To me,
1: it was reassurance.
2: All right, That's I'll go along I mean. with
0: that. <laughs> Let me ask you because you know ever since Khan, and this has been before Star Trek Five and since, uh, with the ex- notable exception of Four, Star Trek's always, or the studio's always saying, like, "Who's your villain? Who's your Khan?" And in your case, you have Cybok who starts as a villain, and then we find out he, he's, he's not a villain. You have the, the Klingons. Did you have a sense of there was this pressure to create this big bad that? Um, the, you know, and how, how, did, how did that work? And also, can you talk about uh, the original choice for Cybok, which, of course, was uh, Shaqaree or Sean Connery, as uh, the anagram
2: goes? Well, we were never going to get Sean Connery. That was, that was, <laughs> that that was, was... clear. We weren't going to get Sean Connery. Um, but, you know, it, surprisingly, if you look at Star Trek four, there's no villain in Star Trek IV. Um, I guess the villain or the opposition is time itself and the, 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 the ticking clock.
1: And mankind's foolishness.
2: Yeah, in the, uh, in the original story that Bill wrote, and you'll be fresher on this than I am, but um, I, I think the character who was called Czar at that time was a little bit more extreme. I, I, I kind of remember him being a, uh, quite a bit more sort of warrior-like or, or uh, you know, and, and, and it might have been good for us to have kind of gone back that way. I, I feel like by, one, in making him uh, Spock's brother, but also in making him sort of a, a, a visionary um, and a guy obsessed with this quest and finding this, this place, it made him a much more sympathetic kind of, kind of opponent um, and I think, you know, you know, Bill, Bill was fascinated with uh, evangelists, television evangelists, particularly Dr. Gene Scott. I don't know if you remember Dr. <laughs> Gene Scott, but he used to sit in that kind of throne and wear funny hats, this guy. And I guess Bill had met him also. So he was. So his, his inspiration, I think, for this was he was just fascinated by these kind of messianic, you know, figures and and and, and characters. Um, but again, Cybok got kind of toned down and smoothed, you know, uh, down. And I'll never forget a decision that somebody made, which was, if you remember, in most of the movie, uh, Larry Luckenbill has this kind of wild hair and beard and so forth when they end up in the climax going to see god he's cut his hair right. and his beard and i th- said what is that? what and i guess their thinking was he just wanted to look more cleaned up or presentable to, to
0: god to <laughs> meet i gotta, god. Going I gotta to get a Lord. haircut to meet yeah. god He's <laughs> very
2: judgy yeah i never got that
4: <laughs> i uh i will say i'm actually kind of a big fan of cyborg uh, mainly because of his turn at the end, um, and it, it's to the point where whenever you know we talk about Spock's family on, say, other shows, which Star Trek in the title, and Spock's family is a big deal, I always ask myself, where is you know? It's like, there's another brother out there, what's he doing,
0: where is he? I, I guess Lawrence Luckenbill was someone that uh, Shatner had seen playing uh, LBJ and got really excited. I, I think it's a perfectly credible performance. I think he's 100%. terrific in the movie, but it also shows the importance of star power because, of course, you have in Star Trek VI Christopher Plummer playing Chang, um, you know Ricardo, who's you know was well known because of Fantasy Island and his great noir films and had been around for many years, um, and I think that maybe part of the reason Seinbach isn't in that pantheon is just because it, he wasn't a star. He was a character actor who got lucky and got this great you know, thing where he could chew up the scenery. You know what, I
2: think that's true, but there was also, we were also trying not to repeat Khan. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and Bill's Czar was much more Khan-like. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to find, as I recall, trying to find a different direction uh, for the character so that he wouldn't come off quite so showboaty and, and uh, huge.
1: So, uh, at some point, um, during the process of, of the story, and uh, at some point in early, earlier drafts, Spock and McCoy are, are turned away from Kirk, right? And the actors uh, had a problem with that. So funny. That's, how that's I, exactly the
2: question i That's funny. At. Okay. <laughs> and that, that was that... just the one I was going to answer. <laughs> <before. laughs> um, because I have been thinking about this, and then, I think that yeah. scene,
1: as it exists in the film, is the greatest scene in in Star Trek movies.
2: Thank you yeah it's, it's it was,
1: a, and it shot really well, too. yeah yeah,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and um you know I'll tell you something um originally, of course, it was going to be a story where it's like Kirk stands alone, right, you know, one man against everybody, and then Leonard said, "Well, I don't feel like I would desert." Kirk, no matter what. So then it became two men against everything. Little less dramatic, right? One man strong, two men against, a little weaker. Then McCoy said, well, I wouldn't either. So now it's three men against everybody, so. And Jimmy Doon didn't care. <laughs> as long as he got he paid, he didn't care. He was, he was knocked out on the, on, on the deck somewhere. Another annoying scene, by the way, which in, in script, you know, the one I'm talking about where he walks down the hall and he says, well, I know this yeah. ship like that back. I'm like, bang, you know, and falls down. They lit that so brilliantly right. yeah. that it makes him look so stupid and ridiculous. And, you know, as scripted, it was supposed to be some dark corridor and some thing, you know, hanging down. Now look, it's, it, it may not be the funniest joke of all time, but they made it like the least funny joke of all, of all time. <laughs> we, we know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you know. Look, unfortunately,
0: and as a as a writer, you don't have control over this. Where he was really let down, also, is you know hair and makeup. The, 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 they look older in Star Trek Five than they do in Six. Production design is not a particularly good-looking movie, and the costumes are not very good. So you know, when people say, "Oh, you know, maybe I don't like Star Trek Five it's like you are undermined. kind of at every turn by sort of things out of your control.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that I think worked worked against it also was that by Cybok being this sort of renegade leader with this sort of motley ragtag crew, and they came up with these ideas of, well, they wouldn't have regular phasers or laser beams or whatever. They had these pipes, then they shot rocks out of the pipes. And, you know, conceptually that's, that's smart. But on the other hand, when you go to stage that, it looks five and dime. You know, it looks cheap. Yep. And I think that, was, that, that worked against the movie. Um, but it reminds me of of, of a scene I, I, I always tell people about, which is there's a, you know, this moment where Uhura does the, the singing and the fan dance yeah, kind sure. of thing. Oh, we know. I had I had pitched that as as a as a joke. We were just sitting in a room, and I said, <laughs> you know, you know, and Bill and Harv looked at me and was like, "We're gonna do it," you know. So they decided that they would do it. When we went when we went to shoot it, we were out in the desert somewhere. It was very cold at night, and there were these dunes, these rising dunes, and he had, I don't know, 30 or 40 extras dressed up in these alien costumes. And the idea was that these aliens were going to be scrambling up the side of this sand dune, attracted to Uhura at the top, who was doing this sort of sirens, sirens song. And we had those big Ritter fans going to get wind and sand blown around so there was no sound being recorded. And and uh, Nichelle was not there for this. It was just sort of a side angle shot, the camera of these 30 or 40 people scrambling up the side of this, this hill. And Bill, I don't remember if he had a megaphone or not, but he was like, he was being Cecil B. DeMille, and he was standing off camera, and as they were going up the side of this this dune, he was yelling out instructions, you know, to them. And it was like, you're trying to get to the top. You've got to get there faster. You've got to keep climbing. Keep climbing, everybody. And a few of you fall down. They all <laughs> fell, <laughs> fell down. <laughs> like 50 people at the same time just went thump. <laughs> i hope that's on film somewhere because it was it was it was pretty funny i think the next time we did the take it was like all right all people with the uh, even numbered birthdays fall down or something like that
0: nail <laughs> stop and start to think even
3: <laughs> i've got a, a, another question about you know you said you came to star trek kind of uh, fresh you know you weren't a star trek fan yet uh, there was always something interesting about Star Trek V that I liked, which was Nimbus Three. you know, the planet of galactic peace, where you had the meetings of the Romulans, the Klingons, and, and, and they weren't exactly the. And and uh, David Warner's character. Yeah.
0: Now, these characters In weren't. In another ex- movie, he's so good. Well, I yeah, mean, as opposed yeah, to the yeah,
3: other and, two and actors. But as, as far as Star Trek canon is concerned, I always thought that was a really interesting choice. And the fact that they didn't exactly put. They're top men on the planet of Galactic Peace, <laughs> right? It was right. like, you know, yeah. and, and you had these great actors. And of course, uh, how did that come about? And was that your idea or where did that notion come from?
2: I, you know, it probably came out of discussions with with Harv and, and, and Bill. Um, because, yeah, that was, that was uh, one of those kinds of things that we remembered from older movies, you know, where you would have these, these uh, like Berlin or something like that, where you would have these different powers that would gather together to basically be the, the force there, but they were all kind of disaffected. It was like Graham Greene or something, you know, like right, a Graham right, Greene yeah, kind yeah. of... And that's, I think, that was the idea behind the David Warner character, yeah. that he was this disaffected, uh, you know, Brit in this, in this situation. David Warner, by the way, one time asked us all to come to his trailer. He wanted to talk to us about something in the script. And so Harv and Bill and I, we piled into the, the trailer, and Warner held up the script, and he said, in this line here, do you mind if I put this word here and this word over here? He, all he wanted to do was just transpose two words. But because he's a British actor, mm-hmm. stage trained, right. respecting the script, this was a big deal for him to just ask us to, you know, change a couple of words. I thought that was very cute. Did you tell him yes? <laughs> yeah, we, okay. we, we, we yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, wait a minute. I have an objection to that. It was written specifically. You yeah.
0: gotta love David Warner. I have about ten minutes left. <laughs> okay. Well, then we we're probably going to want to open it to questions. But before we do that, I just want to say, you know, for those of you who aren't listening to the podcast, you know. This is an episode we're recording for Inglorious Trexperts. It's our uh, uh, Star Trek podcast uh, that we do every week. It's on every Saturday. So if uh, you go to Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, and IngloriousTrexperts.com, where you can also get swag. Yeah, like that this shirt. Like that shirt. Um, and the thing about um, this week's episode is uh, an interview with uh, Mike Mattesino and Dave Fine about the Star Trek uh, The Motion Picture Director's Edition. So check that out. Last week, uh, Kirk Thatcher dropped in to talk about Leonard Nimoy for his birthday. Not Kirk's birthday, Leonard's birthday. Um, and you know, we've talked to people like Walter Koenig, and just uh, we did our, uh, over the holidays, we did our Casey Kasem Top uh, 50 Countdown yeah. of the 50 Greatest Star Trek episodes of all time. 51. The Top 50 51 of the yeah, Greatest 50. So, so anyway, Day. all the episodes are up there at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Check it out. Um, it's, it's super fun, super entertaining. And uh, if you're a fan of Discovery, listen to our other podcast, Disco Nights, um, with Chase Masterson, which is also available wherever you get your podcast. Okay, so enough of the plug, let's go back to some questions. Um, uh, anyone who has any questions, there's a mic back there, please line up. We're also going to be giving away, courtesy of La La Land, these great limited edition LPs of, I hope it's not the Star Trek the Motion Picture theme after that conversation. No, it's, um, <laughs> it's the, it's the uh, main title from
1: uh, the original series, uh, a lovely, this is also courtesy of Dave Fine, this is uh, the
0: Delta Shield uh, album. Vinyl and for you kids and I want to say that it is it, it, Assuming that David is still talking to us when this panel is over I'm hoping to get him down to the studio to record an episode on the Academy years Which is the script he wrote for Harv after the final frontier, which it was a prequel uh, Which is where we found out how Kirk Spock and McCoy first met. actually met yeah, and uh, and and best it,
2: best script I ever wrote
0: And it's terrific. It's a terrific, terrific script. Another, it's another tragedy that didn't get made. Although there's plenty of it in Star Trek 2009. Yeah, David, Um,
1: share your pain and gain strength from the sharing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
1: so um, questions. A question.
0: Uh, I had heard on another podcast. Sorry. Don't listen um, to other podcasts. (laughs) That uh, an early concept for Star Trek V involved them searching for Satan, and Paramount was like, "No," and then it morphed into the God Planet idea instead.
2: Yeah, that the, Bill's original uh, story. I, I don't think he I don't think he ever intended it to be Satan. Do you remember? Whether yeah, whether... yeah
3: it wasn't. It wasn't
2: like quite like that. No, it, it it wasn't. But it was more satanic. Let's put it that way. And, uh, but but I, as I recall, it was still about uh, a being that was impersonating, you know, these these faces and these other gods. And, and as I understand it, originally, and this has preceded you, was he wanted
0: to do the, the Fountain of Youth, um, and then, which apparently Sam Jackson discovered in Captain Marvel. But um, and then what ended up happening was. Um, he wanted to do God, but you know, Gene Roddenberry had famously written the God thing back in the '70s, which Paramount and Barry Diller had unceremoniously. Um, this is the one where Kirk fights Jesus on the bridge of the Enterprise. So, um, true story. But um, <laughs> but the, uh, the so they didn't want to do this. So basically, the idea was they would meet God and find out God was actually the devil. Um, but all that preceded David, and there was a little magic of two going on there and stuff. But anyway, so okay, thanks.
1: A question for uh, David. Uh, How did
0: the test screenings go, and how did uh, the reaction to that inform the final product?
2: You know what? That was was part of the process where I wasn't around. I was off doing something else. I know that Bill turned in a cut. Um, I don't know whether they tested it or not. And then I know that Harv did a cut, which I think is probably closer to what the final film is, but um, I, you know, I really don't remember. Can I interject because I have an answer
0: for that question. They actually, they tested it a couple of times, but the special effects weren't in yet. It tested really, really well. I mean this is what Harf, I mean this is what Harv told me. I assume it's true. But um, apparently, you know, they used some uh, footage from other Star Trek movies because it was just temp because they couldn't put you know, some of it was card special effect coming later. But apparently the movie before the brand Farron effects were in tested extremely well.
1: Um, so that gentleman would just asked, if you'd like this,
0: you you may have one. Okay, next question.
1: Okay. Just a minute, I have to move it down because I'm short.
0: That's quite um, all right.
1: I I actually don't have a question, but if you want to talk about it later or whatever, I have a hard minute story because I read the script for him as a, as the Star Trek expert, and he wanted to have my opinion.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, he, and he did that with Walter, and then proceeded to ignore everything he said too. I know Walter likes to talk about how he was sort of he would do Trekkie reads for. Um, Harv, but uh, their relationship got more acrimonious. Yep. I was going to ask this to David, but I'll just open it to anybody on the panel. Is your uh, kind of feeling about the movie today,
4: right now as we sit here, different than when you first saw it? Big time. Um, I actually just re-watched it, and I'll tell you what, what of my opinion, changed the most. For the longest time, my primary issue with the film really was the special effects. They were so distracting from what was happening that it was difficult to lock in on the film. But now it's weird. It's paradoxical. Special effects have advanced to the degree where, when I look at movies from that era, I see them all as sort of a, um, as sort of a bell curve. <laughs> it's like it's a blur. Like I, I didn't even notice. Uh, the deficiencies in the special effects, because anything that I'm comparing to, like even an episode of Star Trek Discovery, that it, you, you can't make the comparison, so suddenly I, w- I found myself able you mean, to no the mean there is no comparison? There is no comparison.
1: Yes. You know, I, I, I think that my feeling about Trek Five has been pretty much from the beginning and still exists now, that the target that you guys were aiming for was so much higher than other films, certainly in the series, that... It was a glorious uh, miss,
4: mm-hmm.
1: and that I, I think that it gets it gets the benefit in my heart for having loftier goals, and that you know weighed a lot for me.
4: Thank you.
0: I'd like to know what David has to say to that, uh, um, just in terms of ha- you know, do you go back and watch it all? You know, what have you reevaluated it? What was your feeling then? Was your feeling now? That's an interesting question
2: you asked. You know, for people who uh, make movies, and the guys here know about this too. It's very hard not to see your movie as a as, as a big photo album of memories, because you tend to remember how we got that shot or what was going on that day or who showed up or didn't show up or what the problems were. And to me, my experience in working on Star Trek V was was an incredibly happy experience, which is which is why we were disappointed when the movie came out and didn't you know perform. To, to everyone's expectations. But it was a wonderful time in my life. And I was treated so well and met all of these wonderful people um, and was there for so much of it that I just watch the movie now as kind of a, a, a happy, happy memory yearbook, sure. yeah, kind of thing.
0: That is such a I'm such a great answer and I I, I totally get that. You know, that it's, it's and, uh, you know, I would just say from my perspective, I look at it and there's so much in it. I see what I love and I try and, you know, I love that opening teaser. I think it's brilliantly shot that homage to Lawrence of Arabia. I, I, you know, Andrew Laszlo's cinematography is all over the map. There's like some beautiful stuff at the end, the silhouettes on the mountain and the Trona Peak stuff. And then there's some just really sloppy stuff. But, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention what my absolute favorite thing is. And I got to ask you before we wrap up, excuse me. What does God need with a starship? Where did, is that a Bill thing? Is that a you thing? I mean, that is one of the most famous lines in the history of Star Trek. And uh, it's certainly something that I know we all love. Um, what was the Genesis? Again, Genesis. Stop with Genesis. <laughs> it's a galactic controversy. Um,
2: it, was, it, it was an original line. It was a line that I, that I wrote because I wanted to sort of diffuse the the situation and the, and, and, and the incredible seriousness of it. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about, uh, for instance, you know, the Marvel movies is just the way that they will sometimes stop and react to what's actually going on in that right. in that moment. As real people would. Yeah, and, and that was an attempt there to just, you know, give it that, that moment to, to take some of the wind out of it and, and, uh, and give Bill a... a moment of of originality.
0: I love it, but what people forget after that great line, which is funny, is how wonderfully moving the rest of that scene is. (laughs) Because then Leonard uh, Spock stands by Captain Kirk and then McCoy, who's the I think the most willing to believe. also says, well, if, you know, God is capable of inflicting this kind of injustice, this kind of, you know, horror, you know, then I, you know, I'm out too. And it's just, it's wonderful. And again, beautiful writing, which is kind of undermined by the production there, Mm -hmm. you know, the sort of black on the uniforms and whatever. Um, I think we have time for one more question and we got to wrap it up. Boy, this this has been a fun one. Yeah.
1: Could you uh, go to the title of the podcast and the heart of the movie, how you did the secret pain for each Character. I mean, I think so human is probably the two-word description of Spock.
2: I'm not sure what the question was exactly.
1: How did you go to develop the secret pain oh, for each of the, the characters when well, Cybok is giving them
2: the... Uh, yeah, the um, well, that was just kind of like trying to figure out the backgrounds of these guys and where they where they came from. Um, you know, to me, the the, the trinity there... Of, of these characters, I think it 's kind of expressed in the movie too, is that uh, you know they don 't really have families they they have each other, and that becomes their their family. so some of it was just sort of research into star trek's past and some little things that I picked up in different places. I mean, we all know the relationship between Spock and sarek, right correct mm-hmm. and um, and uh, you know the the one with the uh, McCoy. I don't. I don't know whether I found any basis for that, or whether that was just something that um, that I came up with.
0: But it's interesting because in that brief time that you were with Star Trek, you got those characters better than virtually anyone else who worked on the franchise. You know since. Yeah. Uh, you know the idea that you know a family. The idea that you know, a lot of the frivolity hides a secret pain that, you know, Kirk's fear, you know, fear that he would die alone, that, you know, I I mean, all of these things, you know, where people may casually dismiss the movie because of, again, the surface, surface things. They can't look past it. It's a lot of reasons, you know, some people today won't look at black and white movies, right? The greatest movies of all time. Most of them are in black and white, right? But people won't look at them. So it's the same thing with Star Trek V. They can't look past what's wrong with it to see so much of it. That's right. And, and so much that gets the character and gets the story. Again, we go back to that scene of, you know, everyone hides a secret pain. That's, you know, it's going straight to character, to understanding those characters. Um, it was a great question. Yes, sir.
2: Captain. Uh, looking to the future then, how would each of you fix the Star Trek movies?
0: Oh, Oh. Oh. that's a much bigger podcast, which we have coming on in about three weeks. (laughs) My (laughs) my secret pain is that we are out of time. Yes. And I would love to hear answer that another time. So thank thank you you so so much. much. Happy 30th anniversary, Star Trek V. And I hope we'll see you tomorrow for the legendary Starship Smackdown. Good night.